when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome, everyone, to our weekly dispatch from the dark recesses of a vast emptiness known as American politics. It's So That Happened with HuffPost. I'm Zach Carter, and as you guys know, uh, I've been missing you for a little bit. Uh, we've had, I've been having a nice summer doing some book research, and uh, that has interfered with my ability to host this podcast. But I'm back, and this week we've got some pretty exciting authors to talk to you about politics. But first, I'm going to plug myself again. Uh, next week, we are going to be at Politicon in Los Angeles. This is a big political conference with lots of famous people. If you're in the L.A. area and you want to come hang out with us, that would be really great. It's in L.A. next weekend. Uh, we, I believe we're recording on the 30th, but it's the 29th and 30th, so it's a Sunday that we will be there, Sunday evening. Uh, about 6 p.m. So please join us. Uh, all right. So this week, we are talking about one of my favorite things to talk about, and that is bankers who don't go to jail. Uh, I am joined by HuffPost's Alex Kaufman in New York City. Alex, say hi to the people. Hey. Alex, is this your first your first time on the show? It is my first time on the show. Oh, my God. See, that's kind of a crime because Alex is one of the like really – top bank dorks at HuffPost. Uh, and speaking of bank dorks, we are joined by the author of The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Top Executives. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from ProPublica. Please welcome Jesse Isinger. Hi, thanks for dorking out with me. So Jesse, I, I saw the title of your book and I just have to say, that was really gutsy, man. <laughs> yes, my... Uh, the biggest fans of it are, of course, my uh, daughters, eight and four, which makes my wife uh, on the other side of this uh, divide. But uh, I think more people like it than don't. Yeah, it's really good. And I mean, I think this this subject is at the intersection of two kind of complicated uh, ideas that – or at least the ideas that are presented as complicated and difficult to understand. And I think just boiling it down to this is really just about people being chicken shits is really – it's it's a really effective uh, uh, rhetorical maneuver, um, but but tell us about the book. Why why did you want to write about about this? How did you get into chicken shit? Sure. Well, you know, I think that there's a problem in society, and it's kind of flip side of our mass incarceration problem, which has gotten a lot of attention. Um, the problem that we have that all we all know about, which is that we disproportionately and overly punitively punish the poor and uh, disproportionately black um, and people of color. Uh, and uh, there's a flip side, as I say, which is that we do not adequately punish or police the rich and powerful. Um, and in fact, my argument now is that we've lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives, that they have impunity to commit crimes. And I wanted to trace that. I was very troubled by the financial crisis. I think it's a problem that goes beyond the banks and is not just about the financial crisis, but affects all sorts of companies from industrials to tech to pharmaceuticals to retailers. Um, and uh, they have the ability to, as I say, commit crimes with impunity. Yeah, Alex, I I, I feel, you know you've you've been a business uh, reporter with us for several years now, but I feel like being a business reporter is a more uh, political uh, sort of job today than it was maybe fifteen or twenty years ago. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what drew me to it in the first place. You know, when I was trying to figure out where uh, I guess my interests lied in journalism, I think that by and large, big companies and and uh, executives are the most powerful people in our society today and that we really don't have the there really isn't the same kind of drive I think to write about politics 
uh, if you really want to write about power, um, as there is in business. Politics feels a little bit more like sports writing to me sometimes. Yeah, right, right. Who's up and who's down? Who had the worst week in Washington? Um, when what you want to talk about are the masters of the universe. Uh, so, so Jesse, uh, why why does the Justice Department fail to prosecute top executives? Well, it's not an easy story, which is why I thought that it there deserves some book treatment. It's n- it's not a question of you know Timothy Geithner, Obama's Treasury Secretary, making a call to Eric Holder and saying uh, I don't want any prosecutions or anything like that. It's a it's a set of complex incentives um, and misalignments that have to do with the Department of Justice having experienced a series of fiascos, losses in the courts, an enormous corporate lobbying push after the aggressive prosecutions of the Enron era where there were a series of financial scandals at major companies and then the Department of Justice prosecuted the top executives from almost everyone, including Enron, the energy trader from Texas. Um, And after that, there was a backlash um, and the backlash won. Um, and succeeded in stripping prosecutors of tools and really stripping them of the kind of will to go after individuals. Um, and I now argue the ability. I don't think they have the skill set to do these kinds of inve- – the kind of investigations that need to be done. And, and what, what sort of skills uh, are, are, are we talking about that, that they have lost track of? Well – Everyone knows how to do this. They just uh, don't put in the time and the resources because what you need to do in a corporate complex corporate investigation is treat it just like a mob investigation where you flip the soldiers to get to the capos to get to the capo de tutti capi. And um, here in a corporate white collar prosecution, you need to do the same thing. Put pressure on the low level individuals, indict them um, and get them to flip on their bosses so that you can put them on the stand at trial and have that person say, I did something wrong and point to the defendant, Jeff Skill or Ken Lay, the heads of Enron, and say he did something wrong too because top executives are enveloped in so many layers of protection. They get so much advice from their lawyers and from their accountants and from their investment bankers that it's almost – the Department of Justice says it's – incredibly difficult, too difficult to often to prosecute them. I agree that it's too difficult, but that's why you need these kind of uh, painstaking investigations. Instead, what they do uh, is settle with corporations, which is wholly inadequate. Now, I, th- I think in, in political journalism, every now and then, uh, people talk about this concept of accountability, that that public officials need to be held accountable to uh, the American people, to the American uh, system of democracy. Um, Alex, how how do you see this this intersecting with uh, with with the corporate world? Well, I mean, I think that that this book in particular does a really good job of laying out how little accountability there has been in the corporate world and how few structures there really are in place to hold a lot of the people who are able to break the law at that high level accountable. Um, You know, I mean, I think in terms of journalism itself, you know, there's plenty of great business journalism out there that I think does hold a lot of of companies accountable. I think a really great example and one thing I was going to ask you about during this, Jesse, because I didn't get to put it in the piece that I wrote, um, was actually about Theranos and, you know, some of the the tech companies out there that are, I guess, uh, undergoing a certain level of scrutiny that they haven't in a lot of the tech press, but uh, maybe are now. Yeah, Theranos is a great example. I, mean, I actually think that the media has failed to hold Silicon Valley accountable um, and done a, uh, a poor job um, until only relatively recently. Um, that there's been a lot of adulatory press, especially about a company like Uber, which turns out to be an enormous mess. The Theranos example is an exception. John Carreyrou from the Wall Street Journal is an extraordinary reporter. I knew him. He was a colleague of mine in Europe in the Journal, um, and uh, I think those are remarkable stories. What I think is 
very important to understand and troubling to me is that we don't seem to see investigations, criminal investigations out of that. And that's the kind of thing that I think the Department of Justice should uh, should be a slam dunk because this is a small company. They don't have to worry at all about capital markets disruption or uh, having a lot of employees um, be put out of business and the allegations of fraud are very clear to me and it's been years now, years that they, they should be able to put a kind of case like this together in something like six or nine months. I just don't see how they um, haven't done it and it speaks to this issue of incompetence, I think. Theranos, just for everybody, is a company, Silicon Valley company, supposedly doing healthcare technology. It turns out they actually do nothing. Um, and, and there are a lot of people who are, are talking about Theranos as a giant fraud. Um, and I mean, Jesse, I, I feel like I, I remember the financial crisis. I remember what was happening. Um, I was a banking reporter back then for a trade publication. And I remember thinking, my God, these people are going to go to jail. Uh, I mean, it's, it just seemed like it, it wasn't that – it wasn't that hard to figure out that something bad had happened with a bunch of mortgages that were literally called subprime. I mean, the name means not good, and uh, it, it just it just seemed like it, 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 it was when you would talk to other bankers. I mean, it, it just wasn't it wasn't controversial that crimes had been committed. Everybody knew that fraud was everywhere, and I thought, my God, you know, this is going to be really really heavy for Wall Street uh, when 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 this all is over. Um, but you know, as your book makes very clear, and as, as people know. Um, it people didn't go to jail. I mean, it, it wasn't a big deal for Wall Street. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, we're seeing some of that behavior because because this stuff wasn't wasn't punished on Wall Street. We've seen a lot of the behavior migrate over to Silicon Valley, which for a long time was seen as sort of the good guy alternative to the the you know the greedy bad guys on Wall Street. Uh, to to the extent where it's it's just sort of like a cost of doing business for for companies now. Like yeah, you, you break the law, you get in trouble, and and you'll pay like a little settlement because it's not it's not that Wall Street goes entirely unpunished, right? I mean, there have been regulatory settlements uh, with with a lot of these big banks. It just hasn't been enough. Uh, to to really change, um, I, 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 there's there's something about individual accountability that really matters. And what what do you think with our? I mean, I, I feel like there have been uh, reverberations of this in American politics. Um, do, do you think that's an accurate statement? Like the public gets that there's something that has gone wrong. Uh, with yeah, the that's what it, that's exactly what I was going to uh, add. Um, which you you're the political expert here, but uh, it is certainly my sense that um, that everyone noticed that no individuals were held accountable after the financial crisis, and this had a profound effect on the public. That they felt a basic sense of injustice and unfairness, and I think the public is right about this. And I think that um, it did a couple things. One is it. Uh, consistently undermined Obama so that Obama couldn't persuade people that, say, the Dodd-Frank financial reform was meaningful because it wasn't coupled with significant punishments. It was coupled with these fines that are absolutely a cost of doing business. Um, And so, you know, if you had had 40 or 60 bankers going to prison and a couple of CEOs, you might have been able to pass Dodd-Frank and have people's attitude about that same bill be completely different. I think that actually the history would be very different. We'd had we would have had a much tougher bill. Not only that, but then when Hillary Clinton ran a calling for more prosecutions of corporate executives, nobody believed her. Nobody gave her uh, the, any credence at all because she had um, worked in the Obama administration, then given those terrible, stupid. Uh, speeches to um, investment banks and she, people thought, well, she can't be believed there. Then Trump ran on a kind of anger about Wall Street. He, he assailed Goldman Sachs. He called Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz before that in the pocket of Goldman and this kind of amazing rhetoric for uh, <laughs> for a Republican. And of course, it was ridiculous because he ended up ceding his entire administration to Goldman. But Mm -hmm. I think he rode the coattails and I think you could make a persuasive uh, counterfactual argument that if we'd put people in prison, we wouldn't have Donald Trump as president. Alex, how do you think this fits into uh, Obama's broader legacy? I I feel like in in D.C., D.C. is a very liberal city generally. So you walk around and people are like, you you see signs up everywhere that say, I really miss this guy. Um, 
uh, he's, he's perceived by liberals at least as, as somebody who who is on their side, uh, who is, they can hold up as, as different from from Trump in a lot of important ways. And I think there are a lot of ways in which it's really obvious. But this in particular seems like it's going to be an important part of his legacy to me in five years or 10 years in ways that maybe people are not recognizing now. What, what do you think? I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, in a lot of places, you know, I mean, New York is probably just as liberal and probably even more sympathetic to the sort of, you know, limousine liberal banker class that's here. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would expect that it's probably going to weigh a lot more on his legacy, especially given the fact that we, I think, will increasingly look at the fact that he failed to do things like this as having set the stage for Trump to come in and, and reverse many of the other things that many of the gains that we thought were going to be part of his legacy. You know, it's like in insofar as this actually helped to establish, you know, a, an environment in which Trump could rise up, that also helped to, you know, seed the grounds for Trump rolling back everything that he did for climate and for the environment, everything that he did, you know, in terms of transgender civil rights in the DOJ. So mm-hmm. I, I think that this will kind of prove to be a pretty negative linchpin. So, Jesse, uh, uh, what do you do as a financial journalist now? I mean, I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm sort of asking you for tips here. Uh, it's been like <laughs> a decade and I, I feel like I've been wa- I've been following the Wall Street story for, uh, you know, it's 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 basically been the same story for like a decade, and now we're seeing the political fallout. Like, what what do you do next? I mean, what what do you uh, what what do you look at as as interesting or compelling um, in this world, other than oh God, we're all going to die? Um, yeah, well, that's good. I can act as an assignment editor because I'm sort of uh, moving away from Wall Street and uh, focusing at ProPublica with a team of people on Trump, which is too important not to. Um, and so we've had to shift a bunch of resources. But I think that um, there's a short-term, the medium-term story and the longer-term story. And the short-term story is that um, – Banks are going to roll back a bunch of regulations at the regulatory level, which is a, it's a political story, a political capture story, um, and a Wall Street regulation story. Where um, we've already seen glimmers of this, but uh, it's a little early. Where you know they're going to have an ear at all the financial regulators, and w- the press needs to follow these debates very closely because the public doesn't and can't understand um, how uh, the Volcker rule is pocket vetoed at places. Um, you know, they don't know what the vocal rule is. So you have to mm-hmm. explain that. So that's step one. Step two may be legislation, although they may not need it if they can um, – if they leave a lot of stuff up, up to the regulators' um, discretion and the regulators are looking the other way. And then finally, um, bankers are bankers um, and uh, they respond to incentives. I don't think it, all of them are evil in their hearts. But um, when the regulators are looking the other way and they they don't care and these guys are under enormous amount of pressure to make a lot of money for their bosses. They're going to cut corners. They just do. They're, um, uh, they're scorpions and they sting. And uh, so the press is going to have to ferret that stuff out. I think there is an environment of whistleblowing still, a kind of vestige from the financial crisis that uh, – um, and I think we need to uncover these people and find them out and uh, and protect them and tell their stories. All right. Well, Jesse Isinger, the book is called The Chicken Shit Club. Uh, Alex Kaufman, one of our finest reporters here at HuffPost. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. And stick around. We've got a great show. Michelle Quo is here. Mike. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. 
yahoofinance.com. Hansel is here. We will be right back. And we're back. Hello, everyone. I'm Zach Carter, joined, as usual, by... Arthur Delaney. And we have, live from somewhere in America, uh, a very special friend of the show, Michelle Kuo. She's the author of a great new book called Reading with Patrick, and she is a professor of law and society at the American University in Paris. Michelle, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast, so it's an honor. This is really, that's exactly what we want to hear. <laughs> I am blushing. <laughs> okay, so uh, your book is, uh, this is one of my favorite books in like three or four years. Uh, and it, it's a, it's about education policy. It is about criminal justice. It is about race in America. Um, tell us tell us about Patrick and uh, and why you were reading with him. Yeah, so I met Patrick when I was um, 22. I was this idealistic college grad who went to Phillips County, Arkansas, which is one of the poorest places in the country. Um, And Patrick was 15. He had been held back twice. It was at an alternative school for kids who had been expelled from other schools, so it was like a dumping ground. And he he was just you're not supposed to have favorites as a teacher, but he was tremendous. He was introspective. Um, He never bullied other students. Um, He loved to read and to write. Um, He was always trying to write a rap song or um, a poem. And I felt like he just really grew in my classroom. He he did one thing that um, was troubling. Sometimes he just wouldn't show up for school. So I, you know, I had so much energy as a 22-year-old. I would just go to his house and show up and be like, hey, why didn't you come to school? He didn't really have a reason. Um, and he started coming all the time. And it was, it was amazing. It was, it was what a teacher wants to feel, that you're making an impact. Mm-hmm. And he, he was like your – you were looking for friendship as well. It wasn't merely that uh, you were hoping to help him. Did it also help you? Yeah, absolutely. To have this I mean, I think, I think you you want to create real real relationships with students. You want to get to know them, and it makes you feel good when they do. Um, and so I felt I felt like I had a place um, in his life. And the story of the book is that at the end of these two years, I am trying to figure out whether I should stay. Um, a lot, basically, in a in a rural area, as we know, a lot of anybody with means tries to get out. Usually, so there are mass departures at high school graduation. Kids don't come back because, you know, there isn't a bar, there isn't a coffee shop, there aren't pla- there aren't people to date, and urban life is more exciting, and there are more jobs there. So for me, um, my par- <laughs> my parents are these Taiwanese immigrants who are like, "What are you doing teaching in Arkansas? Get out of there!" I didn't I didn't think about how when you're in a really isolated place, how much one person means to a place. Mm. Um, you know, it's crazy. You can you can start a gardening club. You can start a Spanish club. You can. Uh, create a festival. You, I mean, it's there's so much need, and you can really fill it. Mm. At the same time, I also wanted to get out of there. Um, I there was no bookstore or movie theater. Uh, the total number of Asian people, according to the United States Census in Phillips County, Arkansas, is 03 percent. So that means people were always staring at me. Uh, it's like you and two <laughs> other people. It's, it's, <laughs> Yeah, basically. There was like the Chinese buffet where I think the two people were, and I'd only go there when I was really depressed and wanted to like punish myself. No <laughs> offense to their food. But um, it really just created this moral dilemma for somebody like me who's like considers herself the progressive left person of color because I realized how much privilege I had in terms of my mobility, in terms of the ability to get out. There's a real kind of collapse of moral confidence. And I left. I went to law school, which is like so predictable and like boring. And then, <laughs> and then uh, I was 
in law school trying to figure out what I wanted to do, wanting to do legal aid, but also noticing that all of my friends were taking this corporate route. So my third year of law school, I get a phone call from a friend who says, um, you had Patrick as a student, didn't you? And my first thought was that Patrick had died because students die. Um, but he said, you know, Patrick is in jail now. He just got arrested for killing someone. And I was, I, I was just, I was just shocked. I was, it was, it was devastated. I, I didn't believe it. I thought there had to be a mistake. It was a different Patrick. And I, uh, I flew back to Arkansas to visit him. And he told me the story of what had happened. And the book is a lot about trying to understand if what my responsibility was to him. Um, I mean, what do you owe somebody who you've met in this fleeting context, but in a really idealistic context, you know, and more largely, like the Delta where I was is this place where people are left behind. Mm. You know, we, we know the story of the Great Migration. We know that six million African Americans made it out of the South, but we know very little about the people who were left behind. Mm. Um, there are all these studies that show that they, the people who didn't leave had less education, less resources. And Patrick and the other students are the students, you know, the descendants of those people who didn't leave. So the book is about deciding to come back to Arkansas um, and trying to help Patrick with his legal case and also just reading with him again. I think I realized when I first went there how quickly a student could gain literacy, but I never it never occurred to me that a student can regress really mm. fast. Um, he had dropped out the year after I left, and then within two years, by the time I saw him, he had a lot of trouble just reading a straightforward, a simple sentence. And, and how old is and, he at this point? He is 18 when he's arrested and mm-hmm. um, turns 19 by the time that I go back to spend time with him. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about your book is we've spent, I mean, I think since the election, really, uh, there's like this whole cottage industry of American journalism, which is about reaching out to the white working class, finding uh, people in white America who urban America is sort of surprised uh, has been left behind and maybe doesn't have it as good as people in um, urban America think of, of uh, working class white people having it. Um, your, your book is your book is about is about rural America, but it's not it's not really about white America. It's about America, uh, America. I mean, what what happens to Patrick uh, once he enters the, the 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 legal system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, like one out of five of rural Americans are people of color, um, and half of those are African American. So it's just, it's really fascinating to me how much we, you know, rural and white appear to be interchangeable. And that's, it's, it's not even just about how black people are invisible. It's just about a fundamental misunderstanding of rural America and how there are different pockets all over. There's the Delta, there's the Rio Grande Valley, mostly Latino. There's Central Valley in California, which is mostly Latino. For Patrick and the criminal justice system, he, this, you know, there's a Vera Institute report on rural county jails that just, it thrilled me that finally somebody was doing a report on rural county jails, but they operate so differently from urban, urban, um, jails, right? I, I did like one of those student attorney things in the Criminal Justice Institute when I was in law school. And there is court every day of the year, duh, right? There, like, why wouldn't there be court? Court opens every day of the year. Um, mm-hmm. People are processed. People have arraignments. They take plea bargains. And in rural areas and in Phillips County, there's court four times a year, four sessions a year. The sessions last about three weeks. So what happens is that there's wow. just so much waiting time in a county jail, which has fewer resources than a prison, which actually Patrick preferred because it had a GED program, it had a library. In the county jail, there's just wretched sanitation issues. The doors were broken, so people would come in and out of his um, cell. Uh, It was shut down by the state of Arkansas a few years after I left, which means it was 
really bad, and um, there's no yard and no library, so... Conditions were literally so bad they could not keep it open. Yeah, jail. they did a report and like this is this That's is really bad. bad. So, <laughs> but to answer your question, um, so he waited for over a year just to get to the trial day, and on that day he took a plea bargain. Not to book spoiler alert, but um, that's fine. Uh, that it was, it's not a spoiler if you know uh, if you know the criminal justice system in Arkansas. He was going to take a plea. Our whole system of plea bargaining in which people just admit to crimes is not good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 so haphazard. Um, if a trial is meant to offer closure to people, to, add, to give the victim's family um, representation a chance to make sense of what happened at the night, that night that Patrick killed someone, um, it's meant to help Patrick figure out what his guilt is, but there's a way in which he didn't participate at all. And the family just took um, the, the deal that the public defender gave them. And the public defender himself was really overworked, as they especially are in rural areas, because they have to travel 200 miles across a vast amount of countryside to get from court to court. And they, this mm-hmm. public defender... Um, he had to start his own private practice to support all of his work because he was be- being paid so little as um, as a public defender. I mean, he got no state funds to do any investigation. He got he got money for basically like seventeen hundred photocopies and gas mileage. So, in that sense, uh, so the system really doesn't work. I mean, I mean, it's essentially what you're saying is that there's <laughs> there there is not enough. Uh, there's just not enough support coming from uh, from the government to keep basic things like criminal justice rights uh, functioning properly. Um, what happens with you and Patrick? We got to wrap things up before too long. Uh, you know, you you get to you get to spend some time with him. He takes a plea. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about about uh, you know what what happens with the two of you without uh, you know giving away too much from your book? Yeah, so the seven months are really the heart of the book that we read together, um, and we read so much. There's a way in which I first thought I would help him a little bit with his legal case, but I realized that what I really wanted to do was finish what I had started when I first went to Arkansas. So we read um, The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and uh, have you guys read that book? Yes? No? Not for a while. It's been a little bit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Also, I was in the play. (laughs) Of course you were. As Peter. Peter, Wow. You were like the hero, the elder. Well, they tried to make me Edmund, and I said, no way. (laughs) I never was in the play. okay. I'm so gullible. No, no, no. Arthur was in the play. I was not. It's just different voices. Uh, So so The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you guys were reading that. Yeah. It was the first thing we read, and one thing that really struck me was how I how much he identified with the character Edmund. Um, if you remember in the book, Edmund is the one who betrays his siblings, goes with the evil white witch, um, eats all of her Turkish delights, and then at the end of the book comes back to his siblings and is, is forgiven. And uh, that, those kinds of identification with characters, um, there was something really moving to me about that because I had thought in a way that the book would be a refuge for him, a way to get away from himself, and he was really mesmerized by a reflection of himself in a, in a book that was meant to be an escape. I mean, this, this is something about education policy that I, you know, I, we talk about education a lot as this this uh, sort of class mobility thing that it's it's something that you do for economic advancement, and that's that's true. That's important for a lot of people. Um, I don't know if you, re- you know, nationally we, we're going to really cure poverty by making sure that everybody has degrees, but um, a lot of education is just an end in itself. I think in a lot of a lot of cases we lose sight of just how valuable it is to have an education that people can actually that learning is just good and that that can be healthy and and important for you whether you are in uh you know the wealthiest high school in america or whether you were literally in prison yeah i'm so glad you said that um 
I'm so glad you said that because I, that's one thing that I realized over the course of the book was I thought about it in really practical terms when we started, like, oh my god, how is he going to fill out a job application? Um, and he needs to read. And by the end, I just felt as if he had undergone, and we had together had undergone this really indescribable period of just learning, just being absorbed, of having self-respect because one can read for long periods of time and feel uplifted or mesmerized or challenged. And that is inherently, that's inherently good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Michelle Quo, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, The book is called Reading with Patrick. And uh, it is available everywhere. So, Michelle, thanks for thanks for being here. Thank you so much, guys. This has been so fun. All right, and we'll be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my friend and colleague, Zach Carter. Hello. And also by Mike Konzel, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, a think tank that's very smart and knowledgeable about financial things, which we're here to talk about today. Mike, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me back on. So happy birthday, Dodd-Frank. Happy birthday, Dodd-Frank. Seven years old. Uh, Mike, who is Dodd-Frank? Dodd-Frank, for uh, younger uh, millennial people, uh, is the brainchild of uh, Chris Dodd and Barney Frank. Um, It is the financial reform bill passed in uh, July uh, 2010, seven years ago. Um, Back when Democrats were totally in charge of Congress and the White House. Democrats were in charge with huge majorities in the House and 60 votes in the Senate, or uh, 59 at this point. Um, But uh, it is the formal regulatory and legislative response to the financial crisis and the housing crisis. The financial crisis that ruined the entire world. Yes. And the housing crisis that that ruined America. Yeah. Yeah. And the world a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. This was a real, a real crisis. It was a really bad thing, and I think uh, in, in a lot of ways, what's what's kind of sad about Dodd Frank um, is with a Republican administration, Republican control of Congress, um, we don't really know uh, whether or not the the reforms implemented under Dodd Frank um, would have worked. Uh, because what's what you what we've seen since tr- Trump took office essentially is a significant campaign to just have regulators not really enforce the the rules that they're supposed to to enforce under under Dodd Frank. Uh, it's supposed to be the big structural change to the economy, uh, and I just I just don't think in a lot of ways uh, we, we're we're going to see it implemented. Well, at the, at the time when it matters. What about let's start with the platonic ideal of Dodd Frank, with the law doing the things that. The people who wrote it intended it to do. I, there has always been criticism of it because it was something that, uh, you know, people like Barney Frank wanted to bring on more conservative Democrats, and you know they were working with bank lobbyists to help get it drafted. Russ Feingold voted against it because it wasn't, it didn't do enough to change the system. For instance, right? There was Melissa Bean, the the Illinois Democrat in the House of Representatives, who was like famously trying to do favors for insurance companies during this draft. Now so, it works for J.P. Morgan Chase. So if it if they if it were if it weren't under a Trump administration, would Dodd Frank be good? Would it be preventing another financial crisis? So um, a couple things that are of interest. One is. Um, we can talk more about the history, but one interesting thing about it is it became a lot tougher in the Senate. So it passed the House first and then the Senate. But the House bill was widely considered, and I think correctly, to be much weaker than what eventually passed. The Senate, weirdly enough, made it a little bit more aggressive. Um, so it's, it, it was an interesting interplay among the Democrats who were kind of new in this 06, 08 wave. Um, what doesn't it do? Um, there's a couple things that very clearly decided not to do up front. This was choices made by the Obama administration that didn't really push back very hard on in Congress. And one, one is it didn't break up the banks. Uh, in the early 90s, interstate uh, banking regulations were weakened and you saw a massive merger wave um, that happened very quickly and it's still ongoing. 
to the point where um, I forget specific numbers, but top four, top six banks are particularly very large compared to the next 50 banks and the next 2,000 banks after that. It does not put any kind of hard size cap on it. Bernie Sanders would run on that platform to great effect in 2016, came up for a vote in the Senate. I think it got about 30, 35 um, Senate votes. But it 33. Not, 33. Uh, but it, and uh, and uh, Senator Brown, for instance, uh, still pushes it very hard. But um, that was not the approach the Obama administration took was to say like the largest banks are too big size-wise. We need to clam them. This is a really good example of Obama's shortcomings as like a really liberal guy. Right. And um, this is a separate strand, but it it does not particularly – it did not see what happened as as a criminal enterprise. And Jesse Eisinger has a a book out on this now. I don't know if we – Just talked to him for this show. Oh, so you may may hear from him right before or right after this. uh, I don't know if this, this is a family show, so I don't know if I can say the title, but his book's excellent. Chicken Shit. Chicken Shit Club. And, um, but crucially, there, there's. The book's about banks? The book's about banks. Like, so, so Deffering has a sense of, like, well, you know, um, this isn't fundamentally a fraudulent enterprise. And again, you know, Sanders ran on that kind of uh, language. And it doesn't outlaw or downscale huge amounts of finance. So there's things like derivative, certain kinds of financial instruments about really trying to scale them back in terms of their size and complexity. And it doesn't do that very much. Yeah, I remember when everyone in the news had to learn about these awful things called like collateralized debt obligations and swap, reverse, default, what's it's. Does that stuff still exist? Oh, yeah. That stuff that like ruined the world is still out there. Yes. Okay. A little less so, but uh, not a lot less so. So Don Frank didn't get rid of it. Right. So there's not a, a stripping out of that kind of stuff. So what does it do? It does a few things. One is it consolidates the regulatory environment, which sounds like it's a BSE way of describing it. Basically, it says we're going to regulate a lot more on activity instead of what kind of sign you hang in front of your store, right? So a lot of firms like Goldman Sachs were engaging in risks that we don't normally associate with investment banking. We associate it with commercial banking. They they could have a bank run like you saw in It's a Wonderful Life. They could create instruments and fund instruments that really devastate the economy when they go wrong. They could um, create instruments that were fraudulent in a way that Investment banks always could, but in a way that had much bigger effects because they involve real lending in a, in a much more concrete way. Uh, but they weren't regulated that way and they weren't enforced that way because they had an investment bank sign, not a commercial bank sign in front of them. So there's a much more focus on regulating on that type of activity. That it sounds a, sensible. Is it sounds totally sensible. But obviously, um, sometimes it's hard to distinguish it. Uh, and so it might be easier just to ban it outright. Uh, and obviously, a lot of people want to push back against that because they don't think that they deserve that. Um, insurance companies don't think that they pose a systemic risk to the economy and could collapse the economy. So they don't want to have extra regulations on them, which is a big Obama-era fight. Um, derivatives, which we just talked about, um, you know, one thing that I think, you know, um, in the 90s, Brooks Lee Bourne said maybe we should regulate derivatives like, you know, um, with transparency. And we can talk about technically what it means. Uh, and the neoliberals of the 90s just ripped her head off. And like it was like Game of Thrones. They like hunted down like Larry Summers and Bob Rubin like hunted down all her lieutenants, kind of put their heads on spikes and sh- like waved them at Democrats and then sat down with Phil Graham and came up with a legislative response to stop that, right? I mean, literally ran her out of town. Ran her out of town, ran a lot of her lieutenants out of town. Um, what she wanted to do is now the law of the land. I mean, that's in Dodd-Frank. Um, so there, there is some progress, right? And, and we did have a financial crisis in large part because the risks that existed in the ho- housing market were amplified several times through the, the derivative system that was not and regulated. D- d- deriv- derivatives are like – I understand that as uh, in- investment bankers just making bets about what's going to happen with financial Stuff. instruments such as uh, – Bonds that are made out of mortgages or stock price movements, or so they're just like literally playing with money, and it causes increased risk taking by lenders, and that helps precipitate the crashing of the world economy. Part parts of it work very indistinguishably from insurance. So you can have the thing where you build a house, you take insurance on, and then set the house on fire, right? uh, Which is literally what happened with Goldman Sachs and a lot of the more complicated derivatives. So, uh, and you can also. Be like an insurance company that just has no collateral and you know puts out a bunch of life insurance, and then if people start dying, you're screwed and you can't pay out anything, which is what AIG did. Um, so there's some efforts to push back on that dimension. Um, you know, the CFPB, a lot of people talk about. It. We talked about it last week, um, but that I think gives a really dedicated consumer um, 
a consumer cop on the beat. And I think it strategically is um, designed to sustain itself and designed to grow and build expertise. This was a big problem is that uh, you know you had five or ten agencies who were responsible for consumer protection and thus no one was responsible. So no one really like built expertise in it. No one built a career around it. Now you have a place you can do that. And you've seen them have real successes with the, arbitration and for-profit schools. Consumer financial protection strikes me as like the one part of Dodd-Frank that regular people might know about and understand. And this stuff about derivatives is really obscure. Uh, also the one I think uncontroversial – like clear, definitely a win for for Dodd Frank. I mean, the CFPB has worked. There's billions of dollars that people have in their pockets that has not been stolen from them, or people tried to steal from them, which has been returned to them. It 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 is working. It is a functional institution that that does well. Everything else, there's there there are different shades of gray uh, involved, but that one very clear success story. Okay, so we've this is we've just discussed Dodd Frank as it should be. What's the reality of Dodd-Frank, though, with Republicans in charge of uh, Congress and the White House? We'll see. A lot of the rule, so a lot of the initial attempts to pull back on rules, um, like the fiduciary rule at the Department of Labor, have stalled. Um, I think what you're going to see is a limit of reform. Um, how much is rolled back will be a good question. If it's rolled back, it'll be in a couple directions. One is, I still think the primary threat is Congress. And through the budget reconciliation process, they can really harm a lot of these agencies, including the CFPB. So you want to keep your eye on that first and foremost. Um, I think the, the most obvious threats come from that path. They Right now, they seem unable to do a budget and therefore budget reconciliation a remote threat. Um, right now, they're having a hard time removing health care for millions of people, which that is too. very tough. Um, and there's a lot of fighting about you know, the uh, um, wall with Mexico and defense budgets and whatnot. But I think you might see quick movement to defund the CFPB. I think you would have the 50 votes in the Senate for it, and the House would absolutely take that as half a loaf. So um, what they could do is to say, we're going to cut off funding in the CFPB in two years. Uh, if you want it to survive, come talk to us Democrats. There's a lot of options they could do. But I, I'm more concerned on that dimension. Um, you'll probably see weaker enforcement if enforcement at all is always a problem with anything. Um, you might um, – in the same way, you know, with Obama era, you know, you did not see criminal enforcement. Um, you would probably see even laxer enforcement under the Trump administration. I think it's clearly going in that direction. I also think you might lose the horizon of what – reform could achieve in the future. So, and I think this is important for liberals and left, um, is to think, okay, what are the next steps? How do we tighten up what's on this and how do we expand out our focus to private equity, which is destroying companies, to um, hedge funds, which lose money for people and lose money for public investors? How do we think about things like shareholder domination of firms, short-termism? These are things that Dodd-Frank does not address, but you're saying if there's like retreat on Dodd-Frank that these other things become more difficult to achieve. Right. We have to keep our horizons forward. So, right? so there's important defense work to be done, but we shouldn't just only defend what's happened. Right. We need to be thinking about what comes next and what goes forward. And um, that's not going to happen within a Trump administration. It's not like we think Dodd-Frank's bad, but we really want to focus on this other stuff. It's going to be like kind of a wholesale uh, industry-friendly policy. And so I think it's important to, to acknowledge what, what was accomplished and understand it as good stuff worth defending, but not at all what we need to be doing yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's this um, there, there's this kind of uh, turf protecting that happens with something like Dodd Frank, where if you say it wasn't good enough, uh, you know, you're you're saying that it's it's terrible and that and that you hate Barack Obama as like you know he he was mean to you as a child or something. Um, you can acknowledge that the thing has had shortcomings, and I think one of the one of the reasons it had shortcomings is because this wasn't something that liberals and progressives had been focusing on for a long time. It wasn't a policy priority. There weren't people like Mike sitting down at think tanks being like, okay, if we were if we were going to have our dream financial system, what would it look like? Liberals talked about health care a lot. They, they talked about criminal justice a lot. Uh, you know, there were, they were a set of issues that were sort of like liberal issues and finance was kind of a conservative, you know, Republican issue. And, and in a lot of ways, I think because the Clinton administration had just sort of ceded that territory, right? <laughs> but that, that's, that's not true anymore. I mean, we now have a, a sort of liberal intel left intelligentsia that, that, that worries about these things and, and wants to know that, that cares about a, a financial system being part of a just society. Finance made itself hard to understand. 
Intentionally like so. Like on purpose so that everything they're doing is obscure so that they could do whatever they want. Yeah, there's a really good argument that complexity in finance is damaging. That you know, essentially, there are really only two basic financial products: you have lending and interest, and then you have insurance against against risk. That was three, bro. No, it's two: <laughs> lending and insurance. That's it. Uh, loans and insurance. That's it. So you don't really you don't need all this other stuff. Right, that was too. yeah. It's it's cool. I'll take care of counting. Well, well, <laughs> you can take care of words. Out, right? <laughs> I'm afraid we're stuck. Uh, we're going to keep that one. No, uh, you know you can do a lot with those two. Uh, and and we we had financial systems for thousands of years without credit default swaps. Um, and so so things things like like the complexity of the financial system and ways to simplify it, I think, are are important horizons to be looking at. I mean, why do we have a private equity company? Why what is a private equity company? How is it different from say a trust from 1900. Yeah, I think the the real quote from the time period to, to amplify Zach's point is um, Barack Obama, President Obama at the point said something like, "I wasn't elected to like bail out fat cats or something like that, or I wasn't elected to like yeah. fat cats." Um, which is funny, one because it made Wall Street hate him, even though Obama played it as friendly as he possibly could uh, through the bailouts and through the investigations. But second is like in a literal sense, he's like, I wasn't elected to do this. Like I I don't know what to do about this. Like my administration is like in and out of Wall Street and in and out of finance, as are the Democrats writ large. Um, it just it wasn't part of the debates. Uh, you know, in 2008, him and uh, Hillary Clinton had some uh, back and forth about mortgage relief, uh, which was the real disaster of the Obama administration. Uh, but it wasn't just like part of the debate where in 2016, it was a real part of the debate. And I think in 2020, it will absolutely be part of the debate. All right. Uh, well, I'd like to thank my three guests, Mike Konzel and Zach Carter, for joining me today. Uh, happy birthday, Dot Frank. It's we'll your be, 12th birthday. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Zach Carter. And this week we were joined by author Michelle Quo, ProPublica reporter Jesse Isinger, and Roosevelt Institute fellow Michael Konzel, as well as Huffington Post reporters Alexander Kaufman and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send us an email at so that happened at huffpost.com. Don't be shy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 